Hi, this is Paul. I just finished recording my little video about the evangelical food fight over the Super Bowl ads. And I want to pick up again with St. Francis and also the, well, the rise of Islam. I find the story of the rise of Islam very interesting. And, but I want to couch it in, in a sense, in a lot of what Chesterton does in having to deal with the question of St. Francis. So you can go back to the first video where I had something of Islam and then St. Francis. I'm going to do the same thing. St. Francis obviously is a very interesting figure in this because it was St. Francis that tries to end the Crusades by, we'll get, we'll get, we'll get there some point if I can rein in my ADHD long enough. But I, I do want to bring up again Guy Landau's, I think, very helpful demonstration and his little chart because it's kind of living in my brain. That model is living in my brain in terms of the story and some of the some some of you had noted in the comments that, well, you're trying to create a model out of story. Yes, this is part of the conflict here, where in some ways, once you say story as such, you've already brought it into the model world. And that's part of the dilemma that we have in, you know, we have this recognition that propositions have their limitation. They haven't given us the monarchical vision we had hoped we could achieve through them. But you can't do anything without propositions. Uh, models have limitations, but you can't do anything without models. That sentence right there, you can't do anything without models, there's a model. You can't do anything out of without models, it's kind of a story too. So you see, you're just kind of going both ways between model and story and model and story and model and story. So... That's that's always going to be with us. Now, let, let's begin. I really love that, that first video that I talked about Islam and St. Francis. I've, I've been reading Thomas Carlyle, and, and some of the comments in the Islam and St. Francis video were really excellent. I, I really appreciate it. And again, I don't, I don't just, I don't, positive comments are nice. They're just, you know, it's fluffy. Oh, that's, oh, we love Paul. I love you too. Little warm bath of love. I do I do these things that I know that Chad's going to clip and they're going to become branding on Grizz's channel. So there you have it. But the the, the critical comments are are twice as helpful in some ways, uh, as long as they're done in in a helpful spirit. Um, because to say, oh, PBK is all wet. Well, that's not new. <laughs> I get all wet every morning when I take a shower. I'm all wet half the time, at least when I open my mouth. That's okay. But how? Give us a, give us a, give us, tell me what I did wrong and write it in a way, in a compact way, because it's a comment, write it in a compact way that others can see and understand. One of the things that I've been hearing a lot of lately is, Paul, your channel has so much engagement. I, I, I don't all channels have the same kind of games. Flebus made a great comment. He, he watched this one video on a major channel with all kinds of views. And then he went to Chad's channel and he said, Chad has better comments on his channel. That's because of you. That's because of the excellent comments that you devote and Bridges of Meaning Discord and all sorts of things, the, the other little channels and this little fire ant flotilla all grow out of the fact that you have left good comments and you found comments insufficient. So you decided to start a channel and participate in this game and not just sit back and consume. So really enjoyed the comments on that Islam and Saint first Islam and Saint Francis video. So here's another one. And this time instead of starting with Islam and going to Saint Francis, I'm going to start with Chesterton and Saint Francis and then go to Islam.
because what Chesterton begins with is the question of historiography, and it's also the question of to what degree can we know the past? Now, we have to do so through models in many, in many ways, but what Chesterton shows is that our models are so often so shallow. Chapter 2. The World St. Francis Found The modern innovation which has substituted journalism for history, or for that tradition that is the gossip of history, has had at least one definite effect. It has ensured that everybody should only hear the end of every story. Journalists are in the habit of printing above the very last chapters. Now, I have, I have grown into the fashion of starting chapters of books multiple times. I'm still in chapter two of Faith, Hope, and Carnage by Nick Cave because I get to some things that he says and it just, they just stagger me and I have to chew on them and I have to wrestle with them and, and. Some of them become videos because this is how I chew and wrestle and I do it with you and you respond in the comments and and I go back and forth and and you impact me. I mean, if there's any if there's maybe the reason this channel has grown is because I listen to you and you say things that I can't listen to all of you. There's too many of you already. And so you have to up your game. <laughs> and if PVK is going to hear me, I have to phrase it in a certain way. And you are. You're meeting the challenge. But anyway, I've started this chapter like five times. And each time I start it, I've gone through it like five times. And each time I go through it, I hear more and more. And I appreciate it more and more. And this, this gets into this question of, okay, so the rise of Islam. That used to have, for me, it was so low resolution. You look at a map, and used to be Christian, then it was Muslim. It's sort of like, well, he's going to, Chesterton's going to talk about it. What's fun is that this is before the Second World War, so the names and the places he talks about, all that stuff gets scrambled again in the 20th century in Europe. So they are serial stories when the hero and the heroine are just about to embrace in the last chapter, as only an unfathomable perversity prevented them from doing so in the first, the rather misleading words, you can only begin this story here. But even now, now, shout out to Mark Lefebvre, because for a long time, Mark Lefebvre was talking to me about middle out, middle out, middle out. I was like, what the heck is he talking about, middle out? This is some of that, and I'm sure I don't have it completely right, and I'm sure Mark is going to correct me, but... Chesterton's point here is that we always start the story from the end. Now, in a sense, you don't really know a story until an end. And often when there's a death of someone, that is an end, but seldom do, excuse me, seldom do their stories end when they die. Because one of the crazy things about history is we keep looking back on it through our lenses and what was salient to the people who are living through the story is different for us looking back onto the story. And this is not a complete parallel. For the journals do give some sort of a summary of the story while they never give anything remotely resembling a summary of the history. And newspapers not only deal with news, but they deal with everything as if it were entirely new. It is exactly in the same fashion that we read that Admiral Bangs has been shot, which is the... F now, did you catch Ch Chesterton? Oh, he's so subtle. 
did you did you catch what he said there in terms of newspapers not only deal with news but they deal with everything as if it were entirely new very subtle gk first intimation we have that he has ever been born there is something singularly significant in the use which journalism makes of its stores of biography. It never thinks of publishing the life until it is publishing the death. As it deals with individuals, it deals with institutions and ideas. After the Great War, our public began to be told of all sorts of... And, and that's key. I keep hitting the wrong button. And, and that's key as it, when he says, oh, stop, stop, stop. Oh, gosh. I'm, okay. As it deals with individuals, you know, here's, here's a death, here's a biography. So it deals with institutions and ideas. In other words, we only deal with them when they're dead. The Ottoman Empire, when it's dead. Nations being emancipated. It had never been told a word about their being enslaved. We were called upon to judge of the justice of settlements when we had never been allowed to hear of the very existence of the quarrels. People would think it pedantic to talk about the Serbian epics, and they prefer to talk about the Yugoslavonic international new diplomacy. And they are quite excited about something they call Czechoslovakia without apparently having ever heard about Bohemia. Things that are as old as Europe are regarded as more recent than the very latest claims pegged out on the prairies of America. It is very exciting, like the last act of a play to people who have only come into the theater just before the curtain falls but it does not conduce exactly to knowing what it is all about. To those content with the mere fact of a pistol shot or a passionate embrace, such a leisurely manner of patronizing the drama may be recommended. To those tormented by a mere intellectual curiosity about who is kissing or killing whom, it is unsatisfactory. Most modern history, especially in England, suffers from the same imperfection as journalism. At best, it only tells half the story of Christendom and that the second half without the first half. Men for whom reason begins with a reformation can never give a complete account of anything, for they have to start with institutions whose origin they can never explain. And, you know, this was, I think, a big defect of, let's say, my theological education in the Christian Reformed Church. Some of the, I think that's been corrected, actually, at Calvin Seminary now when I look at a lot of the professors who are there, but you just sort of, again, you say, well, Jesus, Book of Acts, and then well, it all fell apart at Constantine, and then Reformation period where we get back to Jesus, Book of Acts. I've got books from the Christian Reformed Church publishing from the 1950s that the books basically read that way. And Chesterton's point is, is well-founded. Reformation from what? Why only these parts? And of course, a lot of that has, has grown now. You can read far more. Or generally even imagine. Just as we hear of the Admiral being shot, but have never heard of his being born, so we all heard a great deal about the dissolution of the monasteries, but we heard next to nothing about the creation of the monasteries. Now this sort of history would be hopelessly insufficient even for an intelligent man who hated the monasteries. It is hopelessly insufficient in connection with institutions that many intelligent men do in a quite healthy spirit hate. For instance, it is possible that some of us have occasionally seen some mention by our learned leader writers of an obscure institution called the Spanish Inquisition. Well, it really is an... Our learned leader writers. Oh, Chesterton. ...obscure institution, according to them, and the histories they read. 
It is obscure because its origin is obscure. Protestant history simply begins with a horrible thing in possession, as the pantomime begins with the demon king in the goblin kitchen. It is likely enough that it was especially towards the end. Now, I know there's some Roman Catholics out there who are running their history laps, their victory laps, and that's fine. You can run your laps. Laps are good. Laps are good. Uh, get, get your cardio in. No problem with that. Chesterton is, of course, writing in England at the end of the 19th century. Very Protestant age. Um, England, of course, huge turmoil between Protestant and Catholic. So, um, you know, in all fairness, yeah. And again, I think we're living in a better age where Protestants and Catholics, I think, can converse more productively about the things that have divided Protestants and Catholics over history. And a horrible thing that might be haunted by demons. But if we say this was so, we have no notion why it was so. To understand the Spanish Inquisition, it would be necessary to discover two things that we have never dreamed of bothering about, what Spain was and what an Inquisition was. The former would bring in the whole great question about the crusade against the Moors, and by what heroic chivalry a European nation freed itself of an alien domination from Africa. The latter would bring in the whole business of the other crusade against the Albigensians, and why men loved and hated that nihilistic vision from Asia. Unless we understand that there was in these things originally the rush and romance of a crusade, we cannot understand how they came to deceive men or drag them on towards evil. The crusaders doubtless abused their victory, but there was a victory to abuse, and where there is victory there is valour in the field and popularity in the forum. There is some sort of enthusiasm that encourages excesses or covers faults. For instance, I for one have maintained from very early days the responsibility of the English for their atrocious treatment of the Irish. But it would be quite unfair to describe even the devilry of 98 and leave out altogether all mention of the war with Napoleon. It would be unjust to suggest that the English mind was bent on nothing but the death of Emmett when it was more probably full of the glory of the death of Nelson. Unfortunately, 98 was very far from being the last date of such dirty work, and only a few years ago our politicians started trying to rule by random robbing and killing, while gently remonstrating with the Irish for their memory of old, unhappy, far-off things and battles long ago. But however badly we may think of the black and tan business, it would be unjust to forget that most of us were not thinking of black and tan, but of khaki. And that khaki had just then a noble and national connotation covering many things. To write of the war with Ireland and leave out the war against Prussia and the English sincerity about it would be unjust to the English. So to talk about the torture engine as if it had been a hideous toy is unjust to the Spanish. It does not tell sensibly from the start the story of what the Spaniards did and why. We may concede to our contemporaries that in any case it is not a story that ends well. We do not insist that in their version it should begin well. What we complain of is that in their version it does not begin at all. They are only in at the death, or even like Lord Tom Noddy, too late for the hanging. It is quite true that it was more horrible than any hanging, but they only gather, so to speak, the very ashes of the ashes, the fag end of the faggot. The case of the Inquisition is here taken at random for it is one among any number illustrating the same thing, and not because it is especially connected with St. Francis, in whatever sense it may have been connected with St. Dominic. It may well be suggested later indeed that St. Francis is unintelligible, just as St. Dominic is unintelligible, unless we do understand something of what the 13th century meant by heresy and a crusade. 
but for the moment I use it as a lesser example for a much larger purpose. It is to point out that to begin the story of St Francis with the birth of St Francis would be to miss the whole point of the story, or rather not to tell the story at all. And it is to suggest that the modern, tale-foremost type of journalistic history perpetually fails us. All right. The book is in public domain. You can get it on Kindle, nicely printed up. This is the version I have. What's 99 cents or something like that? The audio book is out there. Um, it's, yeah. But the point he's making is an excellent one. And... Well, we don't want to carry the point too far and say, well, then why study anything in history at all? Study we must. Study we must. We'll have difficulty grasping. And and this is the point of, of models in that, again, the world is too big. Combinatorial explosiveness is too massive. We, we have to have models and names and tools to try to manage things, and we hope that we can have a bit of accountability and reality with respect to these models, yet they do all fall short at one point or another. So in my St. Francis Islam video, the last one, um, uh, what was it called? Yeah, this one, Islam meet Mr. Enlightenment, Moderns meet Mr. Francis, the lover, awash in historiography. I took a little bit of the front end of the exploring the Quran and the Bible, the Fred Donner conversation, and, and I really was looking forward to the, the second part of the conversation. But then Ash, who's been on the channel, this is, again, where, I mean, you guys all make me smarter. I really like it. I really appreciate it. And, and sorry that you're trying to make me smarter sometimes at a speed I can't take in because it's only one little head and it's got to take all of y'all in. But um, send, I said, oh, no, this is a... Uh, this, this is a much better conversation. Jack Tenuse, the importance of Syriac, simple believers in the making of the medieval of, of the medieval Middle East. So I went and downloaded the sample of the book on, on Kindle. Haven't really dug into it yet. It's just the sample, so it's just the first part, but really enjoyed this conversation with him. Learned a ton about Syriac which I didn't know, which was super helpful because there are things you just bump into. You know, you're reading through commentaries and as a preacher, you're trying to get your sermon together and there's all kinds of technical stuff and this in the Syriac and that in the Syriac. And I didn't fully understand the relationship between Syriac and Aramaic and the importance of the language. He gave a nice treatment of Eastern Christianity and a bunch of the things going on there and enjoyed the whole video. But what I was really waiting for in the video was what came just at the last end. And I saw that they did a second conversation. I haven't watched it yet, but I don't know that they actually get into the second half, what it is that, that I'm looking for, but found this just super helpful. I'm going to jump in at the end of this other there's so many fascinating elements to this video where he's talking about the Psalms and the role that the role that the Psalms play. And because part of <sighs> people often treat the Bible like it fell out of the sky. And if that's true of the Bible, it's true of the Book of Mormon and is it true of the Quran? I'm not going to put words in your mouth if you're Muslim. but um, And of course, these guys are doing what modern scholarship does and says, well, where does this book come from? Why? Why? How are Psalms treated in the Quran and why does that matter? 
What does that say about Muhammad the preacher when, like every preacher, he has to think about the way that what his audience listens to? have an audience that can understand what it's saying how do you what sort of conditions do you need socially and culturally to have that if i go to i don't know some island in the middle pacific that's been isolated from from all of humanity for the past five thousand years and talk about star trek to them they would understand what star trek is <laughs> right uh and so if i talk about captain kirk that presumes you've heard of star trek right Right. Well put. Well put. Well, before we wrap up, I want to make sure that we spend a couple minutes at least on your book. It deserves a whole episode by itself. Um, this again, uh, friends, this is the uh, magnificent book, The Making of the Med Medieval Middle East, Religion, Society and Simple Believers. Um, I want to ask about that concept of simple believers. But first, can can you just introduce, you know, what led to that particular um, project? You know, why did you see that this is an area that needed study and research? Well, again, it's, it's a lot of it's just for me, you know, I think Nietzsche says somewhere you must learn to see the uh, profile of an author in his works. Uh, and for me, it's, it's just autobiography. Um, I was interested in this in Christians in the Middle East and interested in understanding how do you go from having a Middle East that on the eve of the rise of Islam uh, is largely Christian, at least a formerly Roman Middle East, it's largely Christian to being a Middle East today where Christians are, are, Christians are a minority and a shrinking minority. How does that process happen? I was just very interested in that. And I, I read around it. I didn't, I, there's treatments. It wasn't a topic that had been studied very closely. It's being studied a lot now, um, but it, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, it wasn't as widely studied. So I had that question, um, wh where did the Christians go? Um, what happened to the Christians? Um, and then again, my, I was interested, you study about Chalcedon, you study about debates about the Trinity, and you look at, they're, they're hard, kind of hard to understand for a lot of people, including me. And my father's family, uh, the generation of his parents, they're mostly illiterate, uh, largely illiterate. They lived through 1948 war and the, the war in Lebanon. And, uh, you know, my dad's dad thought the earth was flat. And so I was like, how do people who, who don't have much education, how do they understand Chalcedon? And how do they understand? You know, I, I told the story before. I was... <laughs> such a I'm such a I'm such a troublesome person so I was I was working in the Dominican Republic and I was visiting these churches and the way it worked out is that I would almost always visit the churches when they'd have a special event and so I'd show up and I'd be the big tall young white missionary for the special event and sort of giving authority to the pastor and credibility to the little church in the middle of this community and I didn't have clue one as to really the depths of all the things I was participating in. And as the young Protestant American, I just got frustrated being a figurehead. Um, well, the reason part reason I was a figurehead is I couldn't do much else. So maybe at least I could be that. So I wanted to do something productive. So I decided I was going to visit all of the churches in my region no matter how small, well, that, I could never do that because some of them were really small. And I was going to deliver, I was going to go there four Sundays in a row. And I had basically a set thing that I had these things. I don't even remember what exactly these four things had, but I'm sure there was a good amount of, you know, I was going to set them right about my egalitarianism and I'm no better than the pastor. And I remember one visit that 
I was this old pastor. He was in his 60s and he wasn't terribly well respected in the region. And here I come in and I'm telling him that you're the pastor of the church. You're the most important one. Oh no, missionary, you're the most important one. I am nothing without you. And of course, I had very little understanding about actually what he meant by that. So many of the people, some of the people spoke Spanish and could understand my Yankee Spanish. And but many of the people couldn't understand any of it. So I'm gonna get a I'm gonna get a translator. So I, I grabbed one of the 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 Christian school teachers from one community, great guy. And he was, he was, and what we do when we'd found a Christian school, we'd find, try and find the best educated people in that community that were also in the church. So they were part of the people and give them a little bit more education and talking about a flat earth. So I, I drove all over that area with this guy, those that summer that I worked on this project and worked on it more than a summer, obviously. And we're driving along this beautiful Caribbean road, looking out at the Caribbean. It was a nice road. It was a beautiful day. And he says, I wonder what it's like where the sea meets the sky. And I listened. I'm thinking, is he being poetic? No. There's <laughs> a flat earth where the sea meets the sky. Because a little bit later, I said, well, you know, I got to go back to North America and do deputation, raise funds for the mission work and everything. And he said, do you drive? You live on an island, my friend. Um, I cannot drive this vehicle back to Nueva York because that's what all the United States was. It was all Nueva York. It was all New York uh, or even Miami. They might have heard of that city. But um, yeah, but he was the best educated guy in the village. And understand. Um, um well, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it hit me. It's, I always thought, oh, maybe this is, uh, you know, maybe there's some kind of decline and fall. Maybe everybody back in the fourth, fifth century was actually super educated. And maybe it was like, you know, modern Switzerland or something like that. They're all going to school. Uh, and there's been some kind of period of decline. Everybody, everybody fell away. Um, uh, and then it hit me at a certain point. I was like, well, actually, maybe what if everybody actually was illiterate back then too? And you read around and they probably were illiterate back then too. And what does it mean? And then I, I had come across, um, there's a guy called Jacob Odessa who dies in seven ways, a very, very super learned uh, Syrian Orthodox Miaphysite scholar. He knows Greek, he knows Syriac, he translates Aristotle, he translates the Bible. He's a very learned, very difficult guy. Um, and uh, I came across a thing, a, a letter in which someone asked him, if someone's parents are heretics, by which they meant, he probably meant Chalcedonians, um, and they went to uh, have a sort of a commemoration for them in, in, a, in a liturgy. Is that okay? In an Orthodox, i.e. Miaphysite church, is that okay? He says, well, it depends on what kind of heretics they were. If they were people who promoted this Chalcedonian ideas, I'm, I paraphrase here, uh, no. But if they were just simple people, it's okay. And so this idea of, in Syriac, it's called the Pshite, um, uh, the simple. Uh, and that sort of stuck with me for years. Uh, and then there's I, the un unfortunate Greek version of that, I think, right? Of that term. <laughs> well, so it's, 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 it's so in, in, in Greek, it's aplus or aplusteros, uh, and then it's also uh, idiotis. That's the one uh, I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah so it's a Syriac word, uh, which is uh, hediota in Syriac, comes in a Syriac okay. too. Okay. Uh, it just means a, a simple, unlearned person. Um, and I had a philosophy professor's undergrad who we had in this class about Nietzsche again. He explained to us what Nietzsche's will to power meant. And he, he said, look, guys, look, look folks, um, uh, once you understand the will to power, what it is, you see it everywhere. 
and I had this simple believer moment. I was like, once I realized there's this notion of the simple out there, it's all over late antique Christian literature, the simple believer. Uh, and bishops talk about these bad guys trying to seduce the simple. It's used in all kinds of different ways. And you can, it's re, you can try to reduce it to rhetoric, but I think there's an idea out there and I think it's very powerful. And you see it in stuff up to, up to 20th century. I've seen people refer to simple Christians, just everyday Christians who aren't professional Christians, who aren't professional Muslims. They talk about the Khasa and the Amma and, 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 and Islamic sources too, just everyday believers who are just trying to make it. And they've got, they got a day job. They're not studying the, they don't have the, all the books and everything on their back shelf like you do. You know what I'm saying? It's like they got, <laughs> you see, I, I'm, I got the camera position so you can't see what a mess my office is here in my attic. But, um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm a disaster. But so they don't have, they don't have the time. They don't have the, the leisure. The word scholarship comes from the word leisure. They don't have the free time to study this stuff. And they might not, if they had it, they probably wouldn't study this stuff. So how do those folks fit into the picture? Because the image of late antique religion or medieval religion for that matter, that I think people get, I think both Christian and Muslim uh, is very much an elite one. It's one where uh, the people you read about, they are supreme masters of their tradition and they know their stuff. They know their, they know their Quran, they know their Bible, they know their fiqh, they know all that stuff. But what about everybody else? And so I had this question, where did the Christians go? And I had this other question of what about everyday people? And I realized you can't really answer one without answering the other. And, and, and I think that for me, I, to understand what happens in the Middle Ages with Christians and Muslims, in part, you have to understand what happens with Chalcedon uh, and the world Chalcedon creates. Uh, so that's where that book comes from. It's just me trying to sort out questions I had in my head from when I was an undergrad. <laughs> kind of got out of control. Yeah, now, he does treat um, Chalcedon or Chalcedon quite a bit more extensively early in the video, so you can find it there. And it's a, it's a good treatment of it. There's so many great anecdotes in the book, and it's, I mean, it's intellectually brilliant, but it's also great to read. I mean, it's just a wonderful read, and I love the, the point where you say, um, I forget exactly what musical analogy, but you say, like, mastering theology for a Christian, and later up you follow in later chapters about Islam, you say, well, it's similar for Muslims, too, was like uh, some sort of sonata, Chopin or something, Chopin, I forget, do you remember? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like so, it's not easy. Yeah. You, you have to be a master to actually, you know, get the precise categories down. And it's ortho, I say orthodox belief. There's a presumption in scholarship uh, that orthodox belief is the norm. It may be the norm in the churches, but go to the pews. Forget mm -hmm. about what's, what's on the we believe statement in, in, the, in the church bulletin or what's in the, you know. Now, the, the we believe statements, if you go to a Protestant church on the website, it's about 10 or 11 points. So they really pare it down. Now. You can take this a lot of different ways. And, and it isn't to say, again, that these statements are unimportant. In fact, they wind up being very important as successive generations go through. Because if you don't do catechesis and if you don't maintain something of the tradition, if you don't do something, what happens is it gets lost. Uh, Denzinger or whatever, his, his canons, the can, you know, his, his, his councils of the Catholic Church, whatever, forget about that go to the pews and interview people and see what they actually think. Um, and I think you'll find widely divergent uh, views in the pews, so to speak, they didn't have pews in late antiquity, it's sort of in the congregation, uh, that diverge quite, quite markedly from what's on the books. I think that's the case with Muslims, it's the case with Christians. Because um, I think in order to actually be Orthodox, uh, not just belong to a church that, that professes Orthodox, but yourself be Orthodox, you have to be trained, you have to be taught, you have to read, you have to study. It's like learning how to play Chopin well. These things just don't happen. 
right? To, to, it's sort of like watching a figure skater nail a landing or a gymnast nail a landing, whatever. These things, it's 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 got to thread the needle really uh, to get your things right. Uh, and so true. when orthodoxy is defined in heavily propositional ways, it makes it it's difficult. So I think that, again, and maybe we're living in a post-Reformation, post-print, post I don't know what world people can read, there's high levels of literacy, so we conceptualize what it means to be a Christian or be a Muslim for that matter uh, in very highly intellectualized ways. But I think that in the late antique period, um, uh, ritual and its ability to shape your life and to take you sort of, you're part of a story of God's action in the world, a Muslim story, a Christian story, and you live your life in that, in the context of that story. Uh, and you learn that story from the liturgy. Uh, in a Christian context, and you take part in the life of the church, uh, and that's what shapes you, I think. I mean, again, I'm not a theologian. This is just my own reflections. No, it's really um, well, but, you know. So well, I have just two two final questions, and then I'll leave you in peace. Stop bugging you. Uh, the first is the questions, and then I'll leave you in peace. Stop bugging you. Uh, the first is there's the element of the book which enters into early early Islam, the early Islamic period. And so I, I wanted to ask you a bit about that um, and maybe misconceptions people have about sort of on, on the ground interactions between Muslims and Christians. Um, so, you know, some people, I think we hear sort of two like widely contrasting narratives. One is, uh, you know, there was enmity from, from the beginning and, um, you know, Islam was violent towards uh, Christians and there's this phrase, dimmatud not only the Christians, but the Jews and others as well. Um, and, uh, uh, and then we hear the, the opposite narrative, which is no, no, you know, um, especially in the context of Andalusia and Spain or Baghdad in the ninth century, maybe. But, um, but generally that, you know, um, Islam was very um, uh, generous and magnanimous in its treatment of non-Muslims and um, Christians, uh, especially in the Middle East at the dawn of Islam, they were so glad to, to cast off the yoke of the Byzantine Empire and welcome the new, their new um, overlords with open arms and um, everything. Relations are always great unless someone interferes from the outside. You know, so I, you know, based on your research from the book or other thoughts, like what was it actually like in I don't know seventh, eighth, ninth centuries on the ground? So I think there's a model. Again, go back to the video I made about all the hullabaloo about the Super Bowl ads. What's it actually like? Well, what do you mean by actual? You mean like right here on the corner of Florin and and um, Amherst? Uh, right now, at this time, it, in this person, in this head, to, to, to whatever degree this head is unified and, and having one consciousness and one focus, it depends very much on where you are and sort of what the weather is that day. I think it's really hard to make broad brush statements. I think that um, there's an idea because of the Christological controversies, because of um, uh, the meddling, at, at times violent meddling from the Byzantine emperor that uh, people were happy to throw off his yoke. Uh, but I think it's also important to point out that uh, the emperor was a Christian emperor. And I think that um, uh, Christians, regardless of their confession, still looked up to him as a sort of a, a very important figure. 
Uh, and one piece of evidence for that is the, uh, the Apocalypse of Pseudomethodius, which is written in the late seventh century, which very well may have been written by a, a Chalcedonian. Um, but it's, I think the first time it's cited is by a uh, member of the Church of the East, so-called Nestorian. Um, uh, and it's preserved largely, or maybe maybe exclusively, in Miaphysite manuscripts. And why? So the star of this, you know, one of the stars is, is the Roman Emperor is one of the stars of this thing. And what does the Roman Emperor do? He comes, he comes back at the end of time and he defeats the Muslims, right? And so, he, so if they, people are so happy to cast off the Roman Emperor's yoke, why were they preserving down through the Middle Ages uh, a text in which? Uh, uh, the, the Byzantine emperor, the Roman emperor, would come and liberate the Middle East if they if people were so happy to cast off his yoke. So I think that one thing itself, the, and this is a widely influential, uh, it's a hugely influential apocalyptic text throughout the Middle Ages, uh, East and West. It's translated into Latin, it gets into Slavonic, it gets into Greek. Uh, very quickly after its after its composition in the late seventh century. So the very fact of that text transmission and preservation in Syriac by non-Calcedonian communities, I think, tells you that the emperor was a symbol of hope, uh, regardless of his confession, because he was a Christian emperor. Yes. That yes. complicates things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The first thing. Yeah. Second thing is, I think the idea of violent uh, forced conversion. I mean, I think there was forced conversion of, of some Christian Arab tribes. Uh, uh, to Islam. Uh, but apart from that, uh, there are moments of violent forced conversion, uh, say under um, al-Hakam in the 11th century, or in the Mamluk period, especially in the 14th century, in sort of the post-Crusader moment. Um, but there are long periods when this sort of stuff isn't happening. And I think people, there's a sort of, there are different kinds of tolerance. There's, there's also, there's, you know, I think it's been called rough tolerance, sort of the tolerance of everyday life. So people might have like a consciously articulated 21st century notion of tolerance has developed in the context of a pluralistic democracy, liberal democracy or whatever. But there's an idea of like this guy living next door to me and his family, they're nice people and they loan me a stick of butter when I need to make him a cake, right? There's that kind of tolerance. I think it's I think it's widespread and ubiquitous in the Middle East that people, okay, on the books, maybe you think I'm a polytheist, I'm a mushrik because I believe in the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, but you know what? Uh, we'll still like, you know- We'll still have a cup of tea together. We'll still have a cup of tea. There's, I think that yeah. is widespread uh, throughout the early Middle Ages. Um, I think another thing to keep in mind with the Islamic conquest is um, there's not that many Muslims in the early Islamic period. Uh, there's not that many Muslims. Again, numbers, the demographic game, the nose counting game is a very hard game to play. And, you know, if anybody tells you it's more than just educated guessing, they're, they're telling you, not telling you the truth. Um, but, you know, I think Patricia Crone estimated between 20, uh, 200 and 500,000 Muslims uh, immigrate out of Arabia and spread throughout the conquered uh, uh, territories from Spain all the way to Central Asia, 20 or 30 million people. So there's 200,000, 500,000 people in the context of 20 or 30 million non-Muslims. There's not that many Muslims. If you look at the Islamic sources, and again, uh, we can debate uh, the whole revisionism versus non-revisionist thing. My own inclination is going to aren't towards revisionism. Maybe that's just a problem I have, but I tend to think the broad outlines of the, uh, of the tradition are reliable. Uh, uh, but uh, if you believe the sources, most Muslims only convert to Islam towards the end of the Prophet's life, and they convert in mass. Mm -hmm. um, and again, ask yourself if you're there, what does it mean to be a Muslim? If you if someone is you belong to a tribe which someone has gone to the Prophet and converted on behalf of the entire tribe, wh what do you know about Islam? <laughs> Are you a low information Muslim or a high information Muslim? Again, I think the assumption is that most. Christians and Muslims in our period are, are high information Christians, high information Muslims. I think probably most people are, are low information Christians and low information Muslims. And so I think we, in terms of Christian Muslim relations, I think it's often the case. This is a vision, an idea that I had. I had to sort of think my way out of it, unthink the, uh, this in my own thoughts, uh, that to be a Christian Muslim, whatever interaction in the seventh century was, let's go debate the Trinity.
let's 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 debate the Latin Nabua, whatever. Let's do, you know, signs of prophethood. Right. Let's debate right. the incarnation. Maybe or maybe not. Again, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. Uh, and so, uh, and then again, look at the internet these days. We're it's like the Wild West. The level of Christian Muslim debate on the internet, which I've sort of dipped my fingers in recently, just sort of looked at. The level of information is appallingly low. Uh, it's really you, lots of misinformation, yes. but maybe that's what maybe that's what our period was like. People just—it's all going to change now. With it's going to change. With it this starts interview. right here. It starts yeah, right here. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that you know, I think we have to assume that. Now I'm running out of time, so I'm going to have to. Just like with the Super Bowl ad, people watch something like this, and they're just your, your biases are going to govern sort of where you go. Okay, that's relevance realization. These these biases are there for a reason. You, you sort of give something a sniff test. I think it's helpful just to take the, the, the pieces of it and put it up there, especially because we have the natural indication of we want to take this and want to apply it to now for us. Few observations. Number one, institutions, ritual, liturgies, teaching, catechesis, all of these things matter. And they very much mattered in a low information culture because people who were just sort of simple believers, Chalcedonian, non-Chalcedonian believers, yada, 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 you sort of get swept with the current. Now, what does that mean? Now, when I hear something like that, people, um, people get all excited about, okay, well, then we have to double down. Well, yeah, maybe. But if you double down in the wrong way, you actually turn people the other way. So if you're going to actually have an impulse and have influence on institutions and the future, you're going to have to think through how to win hearts and minds now and how to keep hearts and minds as you go. That's one point. Second point. Many of these simple believers were probably living in a situation which was, again, this is before the printing press, very low rates of literacy. Knowledge is primarily transmitted through liturgy, and ritual and the majority of what people needed to know was probably dealt with farming ranching agriculture or business a little bit of technology rates of urbanization i don't know what they were for that period and they varied by place to place time to time we live in a very different context now i was I went. I had to go into the grocery store for something yesterday, and I was just walking through, thinking about the fact. I was thinking about again the Super Bowl ads. I was thinking about the the woman from Parts and Rec, the girlfriend of the of the Chris, what's his name, guy. She she was on White Lotus. She was flying a dragon at the end of that commercial. I don't remember what the commercial was for. These stars these icons these images miley cyrus talks about she wants to basically find favor in the eyes of her idols we tend to be looking at the major legacy religions but boy are they impacted by everything else so in many ways, the games we're playing with respect to this stuff are huge because none of these religions remain static. To be a Christian, 
just even in my short 60 years on this world, being a Christian in 1970 is different from being a Christian in 2024 or 2025. The things that, that we pay attention to, the anti-Catholicism of my grandfather's age, things change rapidly. And, and there are so many other pseudo-religions in the mix that Chalcedon, wow, <laughs> people's conceptualizations of God are deeply imprinted. So in some ways, you might hear this as, well, leave the simple believers be. On the other ways, they are the battleground. And so what you see raging on YouTube is completely understandable. But yet, we also see that, and I think that's kind of what's sort of forming in this little corner, none of us are ourselves a debate over the Trinity or something else. The other three P's of knowing have really come up into our consciousness. And the personalism, the, our capacities for these diverse excellencies, it's really bad when I make two videos back to back because you really have to watch the one to understand what I'm talking and the other because they're both in my head. So you can very much imagine that you can have huge swings of what to us look like categories and over time are incredibly significant. Let's think about the, the Christianization and the conversion of the Norsemen into Christianity. That was even later than the Islamic period. And paganism lost. I mean, part of what happened in the 19th and 20th century missionary efforts was that they discovered that these axial age religions just could wipe the floor with animisms and paganisms. And in some ways, in Africa, it was a race. Whoever would get there first, the Christians or the Muslims, would basically colonize the religions of these animistic peoples. Well, those waves have gone through, and Christians and Muslims are out there now, and the differences between them, with all of the complexity that there are within all of the different communities and gradations within these communities, and with all of the levels of literacy and now media impact and image impact, and James K.A. Smith, who I don't mention on the channel often, I really I think he's coming to Sacramento. I should look that up. I should probably go to that. You know, we have all of these liturgies of regular life. And we don't necessarily tag them as religious because they're secular. <laughs> but they do form and shape us. So, what happened? Where did the Christians all go? Really, questions probably are how many successive generations in which certain formations lost and other formations grew. Now, America has had its version of folk religion. You can usually find it in the movies. And when I talk to people who sometimes are in the pews, usually people in the pews have a little bit more formation. They know a little bit more. Not always. But when I go out there and talk to people who are sort of unaffiliated and ask them about God and right and wrong and good and bad, Oh, Hollywood shapes that vigorously. And yet, as mass media sort of loses its grip, 
then we have smaller and smaller niches. Boy, is it going to be a crazy world we're heading into. Anyway, I am out of time. It would be really interesting to read the comments on this video.